it's episode 32, and right now we're I'm sitting with Becca and Karina, and this is actually just the intro <laughs> to Becca's interview today. So we're going to sit down with Becca more formally in a moment, and I'll be totally transparent. I didn't even listen to it yet. It's super raw, and but Becca gave me the go-ahead, right? It's I think it's a raw topic, so it can be oh. rawly... Put out there. <laughs> put out there and listen to. So, um, but the reason why we're sitting here is because Karina and I are going to Europe. Yeah. Remember like six months ago? I know. <laughs> when we had a podcast and said, hey, let's go to Spain. And then we, guess what? We are doing it. That's what happens in Nomadland. We say, oh, let's do something. And then it happens. It happens. So... Speaking of which, Becca and I also said, hey, let's go to Belize. And then what's happening, Becca? We're going to go to Belize in November. (laughs) (laughs) And you're going to come with us. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. So enjoy the next episode. Uh, Karina and I will be documenting our travels um, the next couple of weeks while we're there. So we have no idea what's about to be. Not a clue. But do you want to say anything about that? What's your intention? Real quick. My intention? Really, my intention is just to flip my perspective on everything. Yeah. (laughs) A little bit of a, you know, I'm just down for an adventure and to get out of my bubble. Yeah. Um, Me too. I'm ready for popping the bubble and getting out. And to kind of approach it with no expectations and no real agenda. And that's really hard to do. In day-to-day life, so. Yeah. I have a feeling it's going to be really easy for us. I think so, too. Yeah. My intention, too, is just to shift perspective, and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast so far, but I am a real nomad now. I am also spent the night here because I don't have a home, Mm -hmm. but I'm finding already, and we'll be talking about this as we go along, but I'm finding that always at home, always at home. Home is everywhere. Um, so yeah, enjoy this next episode with Becca and come join us in Belize. And you can find out more about our retreat at Nomad Always at Home and all of our other amazing offerings. We'll have our 200 hours uh, and beyond happening this fall and a retreat in Bali in March 2020. Enjoy. Okay, so I'm sitting on my couch amongst piles and piles of things with Becca Roberts, who is the owner of Namastasis, for those of you in the Hudson Valley. And um, we've known each other for a handful of years through the teaching of yoga Mm -hmm. (laughs) in this community. So hi, Becca. Oh, hey. Um, we are, yeah, and we've become very good friends to the past, you would say, year, I guess. Yeah. Is really when our friendship has developed. Yeah. And, um, which is around the time that you kind of had a huge, um, huge transition, I should say, um, in your yeah. life. It began around that time. Yeah. Well, it was a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's, uh, so, let's dive in. Where do you want to start? Well, let's see. So today is the 29th of May. Yeah. So on May 24th, I opened Namastasis. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. And you called me on your birthday, which is May 3rd? First. First, sorry. Yeah. Close. First. Close enough. I knew it was like the first week. Yeah, so you called me on your birthday, and you're like, I'm opening up the studio. Yep. Yeah. And... We were just talking about that. So, yeah, then you actually opened it up within basically three weeks. Yeah. So it was like mid to late April that it was decided to that I was going to take over the space and open my own yoga studio and wellness center. And it was a very exciting time. So yeah. I was like, woo, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this happen. And then it was like, uh, yeah, three or four weeks. And I just put it all together as well as I possibly could. And then said, all right, well, I'm going to make this happen, and uh, <laughs> it's going to work. <laughs> yeah, and it was a studio that both of us taught at prior yeah. in mm-hmm. Fishkill. Um, yep. And so you had some, some sense of community there already. And right. Yeah, so it wasn't like starting fresh. You right. were able to not necessarily take over the mailing list, but to a certain extent you knew the students that were Yeah, there. well, because I had taught there when it was the previous studio for five years, something like right, that. Right, that's right, before um, they merged. So I had already had a following there for yoga, and I had a number of people who would want to see me for massage, so it was a pretty easy yes to taking over the space. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, if I take over this space, I already have people who want to come take class. I already have people who are going to want to be on my to- table there. It won't be fully starting from scratch. So it was yeah. awesome. It yeah. was like the best possible scenario to take over a space and create my own business yeah um so it was really exciting it was like may 24th that i opened and everything was super awesome and my parents were really excited for me my friends were really excited for me and um you know so i opened and it's been you know may to june kind of getting things off the ground having a good time realizing oh it's summer so things are still going to be slow even though we're transitioning it'll be a little slower and so it was like you know unnerving but in a good bad way yeah. <laughs> I was like oh my god is it all gonna work and um yeah. you know obviously we're still standing and I'm doing well so that's great yes, it's a been a year yeah. <laughs> um and you know so I'm in this business and making it work and it's awesome and I'm really happy and I'm really excited and then um it was like two months into being in my business so July it was July something so I, I think actually in June my mother was having um like a I don't know what you would call it when you remove a gallbladder okay gallbladderectomy I have no idea sure. That's so, so it's like you know my mom was like all right I will have to have my gallbladder removed because there's a huge gallstone in it oh. blah, blah, blah. and I'm like all right well you know big surgery she's in her 70s I was of course I was nervous yeah but and um it's an organ that we can live, live without yeah, yeah. Uh, to an extent, I mean, yeah. Yeah. you know, you have to change a lot of your bodily functions and such yeah. or how you eat and how you do yeah. stuff. But so, you know, of course, I like sent her a book on how to live without her gallbladder and all this stuff. <laughs> and uh, so she goes in for the surgery and they it's like June. I want to say it's June 14th or something. I don't remember. She okay. had that surgery. And so the guy went in and got her gallbladder out, but it took like real extra time. And she seemed to have a really difficult time recovering right after the surgery was over, which was Mm -hmm. strange. And, um, you know, a couple days later after she had recovered, 
we got a phone call that the uh, what they thought was a gallstone in her gallbladder had been an actual tumor, and it was cancerous. Oh. So at that time they were like, well, the gallbladder is clear in all the margins. The, you know, you're you're pretty lucky. We're pretty sure that we removed the only problem. You know, we got the gallbladder out. It's gone, and you'll be good. So it was like, hundred percent. It's gonna be great. Okay. And. Um, so they had to wait a few weeks, and they said, you know, we want to make sure nothing metastasized. We want to bring you back in, and um, we want to remove a portion of your liver and a portion of your bile duct and just make sure nothing went anywhere else. So they did scans, and nothing came up, so they were clear for a surgery. So three weeks later, she went in to have this um, little surgery to take stuff out, and the doctor apparently, like, opened her up and found five or six tumors already throughout her abdomen and closed her immediately. So there was no surgery. It was immediately from stage zero cancer to stage four. Wow. (laughs) So needless to say, that was shocking to like our whole family. It was my, my father, my mother, or my, yeah, my father, my mother, myself, like all totally blown away by that news. Like, Oh, okay. So it wasn't nothing and we didn't clear anything and now it's everything and we have to do what we have to do to get it under control. Yeah. So when the news hit, of course, I'm like asking my mom, I'm like, are you okay? Do you feel all right? Is this all right with you? Like, I mean, obviously it's not all right with anyone for this to happen, but how do you, how do you feel? And of course she was like, I don't know. <laughs> Cause it's just scary news to receive. Like suddenly you went from being a totally healthy human being to having stage four cancer and a death sentence, essentially. Yeah. And she didn't have any symptoms. I mean, Not that we noticed, stone, not that we noticed. Like she... When you look back at it, it's like she was losing weight steadily for like a year and a year and a half. and oh, okay. But we didn't really, she just thought it was just nothing. Like she was exercising and doing her thing and she was fine. She didn't have any pain. She didn't have any weird nausea or anything like that. The only reason she even had her gallbladder out was because she went to a regular annual with her doctor and it was tender when he pressed on her abdomen. Oh, okay. Like it's the only reason she went to go have her gallbladder looked at. Okay. So they <laughs> so, went, and then she went to look and they were like, oh, gallstones, you should probably just have Right. They said okay. it's a big gallstone, you know, oh, wow. and, um, and it was the only place they saw it. And even in those scans, the three weeks prior to her going in for that second surgery, yeah. the scans were clear. Wow. So this cancer in particular so was extremely fast. aggressive. Wow. Um, yeah. It's also rare. Okay. Yeah. And so she had, yeah, because when she had the gallstone surgery, what they thought was, and then they removed cancer... He didn't see anything else. I guess he wasn't really searching. He was just going for a gallstone because it was probably a small... Well, so the first surgery was laparoscopic. Yeah. It wasn't wasn't, open. So there was no open abdominal cavity. They weren't looking anywhere. He was just removing the gallbladder. So you have no idea then if they were Well, even then, we don't think they were there because they didn't show up on the scans after that surgery. Yeah. So we're pretty sure they weren't there or they were hiding and they were small or... Yeah. whatever happened and so they must have grown a massive amount in those three weeks those three weeks yeah okay so it's nuts that you can see nothing and then suddenly have something be there yeah. like that so of course you know having worked in this field uh with cancer patients who were metastatic uh, my immediate reaction was she's 76 she's in stage four already she's already been told she has you know a year or less I was like, I don't think you should do chemo. Like, I didn't want her to because I thought, what do you want to live your life like that for for the rest of the time that you have on this planet? Because 
majority of the people I've seen t- go under chemo care end up with a lot of side effects, you know, like yeah. nausea, tired, headaches, no hair, like all yeah. the hair loss and like a thousand other things that happen when you go on chemo. There's so many side effects. Yeah. So, so just to stop for, your se- for a second so everybody knows, what, it, what is the work that you do when you say you work with cancer patients? So I work with, well, right now I work at Putnam Hospital through another yoga studio. Um, we have a contract and we um, do, we offer massage, we offer yoga, we offer Reiki services to all of their breast cancer patients. And we work directly with patients who work um, with Dr. Lita Rojas there. And it's all alternative services for them, and it's free to them. So the the place at Putnam County, Putnam County at Putnam Hospital, it's um, all grant funded for Mm -hmm. this integrative health suite. Uh, Now, prior to me working there, I'd already worked privately with three separate clients who were all metastatic. It just happened to be something that just gravitated to me. I just happened to work with women who have gone through severe metastatic transitions and then passed away so so that's really that is so you you went and did your yoga training but you didn't do any sort of previous um work it just happened that the clients were coming to you the students patients coming to you and then you decided okay these are the people coming to me so let me do the work and well what's interesting is i actually did a training with tari prinster um prior to all of that um Cancer has been in my life, like sort of on the outskirts or inner skirts. I don't know how to explain that. Um, It's been on the skirts of my life, uh, my whole life. So when I was very young, I lost a woman named Judy. I was 12. She passed away uh, when I was 12, and she had had breast cancer that progressed to brain and spinal cord cancer. Mm -hmm. And um, so I had watched her go through all of this as like, she was with us for, she had cancer for like, I think she was diagnosed when I was nine. Okay. Ten, something like that. Nine, I think. So I watched her go through this whole process. I was with her through this whole process. And, um, you know, as a nine or ten year old, it was strange to go through and difficult. And, um, you know, I helped, I'm sure as a child, I helped her through that, like see light things or happy things. And I would go wig shopping with her and she bought a number of wigs that I don't think she would have bought if it wasn't me. Uh, Cause I How pulled off related? like, we weren't related at all. She but was my I mean, mom's best friend. So mom's best friend. my mom's best friend and she would take care of me or babysit me pretty much whenever they were working or could, didn't have time or wanted to go out. She was like, uh, mom number three. Yeah. <laughs> you have a lot of moms, which we'll get to <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. So she was like, well, technically she was mom number two at that time. At the time. So <laughs> she um, she cared for me Aww. outside of my parents. So she was like just another mom. Yeah. And um, so watching her go through her cancer journey was weird because I was young. Um, and it was even terrifying too, because toward the end she lost cognitive understanding. She her yeah. it hit her brain, so she stopped really knowing what was going on. And I How experienced one of the most terrifying things that a twelve year old can experience, because I loved her with my whole heart, and she was Judy, and she, and I was her little Beck, and like, yeah. <laughs> and I went to her house with my parents maybe in like the week or two before she passed, and she was in a hospital bed. And I walked in and she didn't recognize me and she screamed. She was like, who are you? Why are you in my house? 
And I lost it as a 12-year-old. I was like, oh, my God, what's happening? And I just, like, I walked out, started hysterically crying, like, didn't know what to do with myself. And she passed, like, a week or two after that. And my parents, I'm sure, tried to comfort me and let me get me to understand what was going on. But I was 12. Like, you don't really get it at that age. Um, Like, to a certain extent, you can get it. But um, And then when I was 21... I was dating a guy at the time for a few years, and his brother had leukemia. Mm. I wasn't working a lot at the time, and so I wound up being sort of like his in-home nurse, like taking care of him when we were at home. And he was also terminal, but he was very young. He was like 21 at the time, so he had a pretty severe leukemia. And I took care of him and, um, you know, like made him food and took him to his doctor's appointments and things like that. And um, toward the end of his life, it was... uh, it was rough because we watched him get sick and my boyfriend at the time had moved out of the house. We had been living with them for a while and then we moved to an apartment. And when we were in that apartment, we got a call from my boyfriend's mother at the time who was like, we picked up the phone and we knew, we knew like he was going. So we went to the house to be with him when that happened. So I was with him when he passed. It was actually, I wasn't with him when he passed. We got there and he had literally just passed. Okay. And so... I experienced that, and when I experienced Judy's passing from cancer, I was, again, 12, and I didn't really cry, and I went to her funeral, and we sat Shiva at her house. She was Jewish as well, and we, you know, like, when I remember being at her house without her there, and all of her friends and family were there, and it just felt strange, but I didn't really react, Mm -hmm. and I never cried, and it was always weird. So when my boyfriend at the time's brother passed away from leukemia, it hit me a little bit differently. And then when we went to his wake and his funeral, I cried for a straight eight hours. Like I walked up to his coffin, looked at him and just started hysterically crying and then couldn't stop for like eight hours. It's the one time in my life I think I cried for eight hours straight. Wow. (laughs) Like, and I knew why, like I wasn't crying just for him. Like, (laughs) and I was like, whoa, I was like, this is, this isn't just for him. This is for him and for Judy, for anyone else I've ever lost for the fact that I didn't know how to handle this, however many years ago it was. And now my mind and body are ready to release whatever I was Mm -hmm. feeling. So that was difficult as well, but it was the same type of process of being with someone while they were going through this and helping them through it without being you know, a part of their actual medical team, just being a person, part of their life. Yeah. So besides those two losses, I went through a lot of loss as a younger person through my early to mid twenties. Like I won't go into each and every one of them, but I lost like, I don't know, four or five people to suicide or drug overdose, close friends. And like, um, that was really difficult, but it was another, moment or four or five moments in my life where I was somebody's support and a family support post passing. And it always felt like I just did that. It was just natural. Like it was just Mm -hmm. something that I would do is support people or, you know, somehow be that brace to hold them up because I was able to. Um, and you know, so after going through all of that, it was like, I was a little, I wouldn't say numb to, to death and, and illness, but like kind of indifferent to mm-hmm. 
the emotions that come along with those two things. Yeah. And I never really knew what that meant. I always thought, well, well maybe something's wrong. <laughs> maybe I can't feel things. Oh, no, yeah. this, is, this might be a problem. Um, you felt things for that eight hours. Oh, my God, did yeah. I? And, uh, yeah, so after all of that, you know, a lot of other things happened life-wise. And stuff shifted, and I wound up, I think it was 2012 when I met my first cancer patient that wound up seeing me okay. for yoga. And, and I wasn't this training that you're talking about. Right. So the training happened. I actually think it happened that same year. I think I did it in 2012. And then later that okay. summer, this woman came to she my came. studio, but she didn't have any idea that it was something yeah. that I had done a training in divine intervention. Yeah. <laughs> so like after going through all of this, like death and transition and people who have had cancer in multiple ways, I was like, you know, I like I did my teacher training, my 200 hour in 2009. Yeah. And I was like, I, I would love to take something, especially just to know if I have a cancer patient come to my class, yeah. how to work with them. What do I need to know? You know, yeah. cause there's so many different, um, treatments and surgeries and stuff yeah. that you have to, to consider. All of pieces, yeah. yeah. So I was like, you know, it'd be nice to have even just a, a training to understand that at a different level versus just trying to study it myself. So it was like a seven day immersion with Tari Prinster in the city. Okay. And it was called, um, or it still is called Y4C. It's yoga for cancer. Okay. Um, and she, her training is amazing. So if there's any teachers out there that are thinking, hey, I'd love to work with cancer patients, Tari Princeton's Y4C, that is like end all be all cancer training, I think, personally. She, she herself is a patient okay. and is just incredible. She's sassy and amazing and wonderful and <laughs> knows 9,000 things or two about <laughs> how to take care of people who are in treatment. Yeah. So after I take this training, I'm like at the yoga studio and this woman comes to my class. I was teaching a restorative class at the time and she tells me, um, she came early and she said, oh, I, you know, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, but it's metastasized. So it's gone to my liver and, you know, I had a double mastectomy, but I had a, a it's like an abdominal, bilateral, muscular, something or other. I don't know the exact medical terms, but basically they take half of your abdominal muscles and they become your breasts. Oh, okay. And so they don't do that one as much anymore because okay. of the reasons I'm about to explain. Okay. Um, so when they move your muscles up, you now don't have those muscles. Right. In your abdominal wall, they don't exist anymore. Yeah. So your whole being changes. Like, so the way that you move, the way that you exercise, the way that you breathe, everything shifts. And so it's like having to relearn your body all over again. So that's when she came to restorative yoga. And she was like, I just need to know how to work with my body as it is and relax and clear my mind about all of this crazy that I'm feeling because it's metastatic and terminal. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm happy to help you with that. Like, keep coming to my classes and keep talking to me. And I'll even give you my number and we can discuss what you need when you need it. Mm-hmm. So she and I wound up working together for, I'm going to say, a year. Okay. Like, uh, And because she was sort of like this accidental cancer patient private, <laughs> like I didn't mean for it to happen that way. Yeah. It just did. Yeah. Um, we wound up becoming friends while this was all going down, but with the knowledge that she was going to pass soon. Yeah. And it was the first time that I was entering into a relationship knowing 
that this person is going to die. Yeah. You know, like, and I, so I kept prepping myself as well as I could. You can't really prepare for someone to pass, even when you know that it's coming. And, uh, I said to her before she passed, I was like, you know, if, when you pass, if I feel like miserable and angry and sad, I don't think I could do this again. And I was like, but if I maybe feel like I was meant to be doing this for you, and she would always try to reassure me that this was what I was meant to be doing, but of course mm-hmm. I didn't believe it. I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I could keep doing this over and over again. Like, I'm close with you, and it's going to suck when you go. <laughs> and um, eventually she did go. It was um, 2013, November. Okay. And she passed away, and I was really sad when she passed. But I went to her funeral and when I went to her funeral, she was one of these people that was so intensely loved by thousands of people. Hmm. And you hear these things about people and you don't really consider them until you go to their funeral and there's a line of what I would assume was 150 people waiting to walk in. (laughs) And I get into the back of the line and I start waiting. Her husband, I think, and um, possibly a, a cousin or sister, I can't remember who it was, comes out, finds me, grabs me by the hand. They're like, you're Becca, right? And I was like, it wasn't her husband. He knew who I was. So it was his, her cousin. Um, and she's like, oh my God, just come with me. Like, come with me. Takes me off the line, walks me all the way up and into the funeral home, introducing me to people along the way, like family and friends. And she's like, oh, this is Becca. And every single one of these people knew who I was. Oh. every single one of them was like oh my god like thank you so much for taking care of her she loved you she loved what you did for her um you know she she really needed everything that you were giving to her and all I was giving her was yoga practices (laughs) and breathing and just being her friend you know like but I didn't see it as a job I didn't see it as work I just saw it as supporting someone who needed me at the time yeah and I was like tearing just talking to each of these people and like realizing the gravity of how many people I touched without even talking to them. Yeah. Like her whole family knew who I was and was so overwhelmingly happy that I had been a part of her life that it like, it was like, there was no doubt in my mind that this was what I needed to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> like I went up, I saw her, I saw her family. And when I left, I was like, this is what I'm doing. Like, I need to take care of people who are going through this exact thing. Okay. Specifically metastatic cancer. Like, any form of cancer I'm happy to support, but I need to work with patients who are metastatic. Yeah. I was like, I can handle this. Like, even if I'm with someone who's going to die imminently, yeah. I know the benefit and the, the what is happening for them and how I'm adding to their rest of their life. Yeah. You know, and so I wound up actually getting like two or two or three more clients after that. Um, Not actively searching, just 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 happening. Yeah. Yeah. It just happened. It would just go. Yeah. Yeah. Which was crazy. Like, (laughs) so of course you can see how I was sort of like blown away when I found out my mother had metastatic cancer. So yeah. we're coming back to this past year. Yeah. And you found this out in July? July? Mm-hmm. It was July 6th <laughs> that we July she 6th. was given that okay. diagno- diagnosis. Um, and, of course, she decided, like I said before, that I didn't really love the idea of her going in for chemo because I thought it was just going to... 
be terrible and she'd feel crappy for the re- remainder of her life. Yeah, because um, here now you have had these experiences. With right. Her. Yeah. Right. And I'd only ever seen people have severe side effects. Yeah. Um, and it's rare for someone to not have side effects, you know. So she, of course, my mother is like the strong-headed, bull-headed woman that she is. She was um, immediately like, I'm going in for chemo. I'm not going to not fight. <laughs> like, so to her, chemo was fighting. And I was like, all right. I'm like, it's your body. It's your choice. Like, I don't love the idea of you going in for chemo, but this is what you're going to do. I'm going to support you in it. Yeah. And um, so she started her chemo and she did really well. Like the first, like six months of her being on chemo, she did not feel like sick. She didn't feel tired. She didn't lose her hair. She didn't like start losing nails or have brittle, nothing. Oh, wow. (laughs) Like she just felt good and continued to have chemotherapy (laughs) and like was still working and like going to the gym every day. It was working. The chemo was. Yeah. So after the first three months we did, um, scans and, she found out like her tumors had shrunk and she was in partial remission. Okay. Which was great. Like we knew that it was still terminal, but it was really nice to hear the news that she was doing well on chemo. Mm-hmm. And um you know, she was pleased with the results and so were we, my dad and I. And uh of course, both my mom and my dad had a lot of trouble coming to terms with the fact that it was a terminal illness like yeah. so even though it was somewhat in remission it was just prolonging right basically the surgeon told us that day that people who are in her age range and have her her form of cancer at the level it was at most of the time don't live past a year okay of course that can change for any person it can be different for any other human so you never want to say a set yeah, amount of time of but in, in his experience at the time it had been a year or less of time he's like it's a very aggressive form of cancer basically the chemo is just going to give her more time okay um so i just didn't know what that time would look like yeah right so we found out she's in partial remission because you can't really be in full remission when you're terminal like that um and we're excited about it it's going well and of course I'm going through this and like my, my business brain is like, I know what's happening and great. I can help. I can support in the way that I can support and do this. And, <laughs> but still trying to really grasp the concept of the fact that my mother is dying, you know, yeah. like that she's sick and she's going to be gone soon. It's not like I have another 20 years with her. Yeah. Um, so, you know, through the whole process, it felt like I had been through it before because I had, but not with my mother. And I kept verbalizing that I understood that it was my mother and this was different. But I never really felt that right away. It didn't actually feel like that, but verbally I was saying it because I logically understood that it was different. Yeah. Like <laughs> your body, spirit, whatever, wasn't actually experiencing it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I kept trying to do all of the the things where I would be like, all right, well, what do you want to do with your money? And how do you want to handle, uh, you know, talking to your family or your friends or informing people on what's going on? Mm-hmm. And when you do pass, what do you want? Like, yeah, it's like the, the logistics taking Yeah, care. really hard stuff to discuss, but it's really important. Yeah. Um, just, just figuring it out. Like, you're like, all right, well, we, the one upside to having a terminal illness and having time 
is being able to actually discuss with that person mm-hmm. what they want, when they want it, where they want things, and being able to truly give them what they want yeah. um, without having to you know, fumble through paperwork or wills trying to be like, I think this is what they would have wanted, yeah. you know, like, and I think that's what happens more often than not, which kind of sucks. So and then there's more of like the whole family dynamics too. Mm-hmm. I trying their opinion, the one sibling's opinion against this sibling's opinion. And yeah, thank God members. for being an only child. Yeah. Because it was really, I think much easier for me, um, to discuss things with my father and my mother and make decisions because it was just us. Yeah. There's no other people to argue or actually my mother made it the most difficult because she's (laughs) like, I don't know. I'm not sure. (laughs) I like this. I don't like that. Whatever. Like very Mm -hmm. passive. And I'm like, we need answers, man. Come on. (laughs) Like, um, but you know, it was just, it was difficult to navigate. Things were, you know, fine. It was hard to, remember that she was sick because she was not having side effects and functioning like a normal person and the way she would normally function. Um, the only difference that started to tell me that things were changing is she would, she started to forget stuff more often. She started to not really, she would tell me something like four times in a day (laughs) and not remember. She told me that was when I knew things were progressing, you know? Um, but we didn't, hadn't gone to the doctor to figure that out, but, um, it turned out in, her like six month mark when we went back for more scans. Okay. So it was three month mark where she was um, in partial remission. Okay. Six month mark, she went for scans and found out that things had progressed okay. and gotten worse and that the chemo she was on was no longer working. So that was upsetting, of course, because so it's it was like, like February, March? No, it January. was. December, the beginning of December. Um, So the beginning of December that we found out she had to switch her chemo. So they they basically said, okay, we have to put you on something else, something a little more aggressive and hope that it works, essentially. Okay. So she went on this new chemo and it was a different type of chemo. I won't go into like the details of it because it's just complicated and pointless to discuss, (laughs) but... There were pills involved and infusions and a bunch of other stuff. Okay. So she's on these pills for like the first few days and I get a call from my father um, that Friday and he's like distraught. Mm-hmm. Like he's just like, I need you to come here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why? What's wrong? And he's like, mom won't take her pills and she doesn't understand that she took them this morning and she okay. doesn't, she just doesn't understand anything. Oh. And I was like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. All right. And so I went to the house and she was like functioning at like a six year old level of confusion. Like she had this. Seems like overnight. Yeah. It was out of nowhere. She was just suddenly not herself. Okay. And um, like she couldn't get the concept. She had one of those like sippy cup of water with like the little straw on the top. Mm -hmm. And she couldn't understand the concept that if she tilted the cup up, she wasn't getting water because of the straw. Yeah. That she had to keep the bottle down to get the water. Yeah. And that simple gesture, when I realized she wasn't doing that, I was like, something is wrong. I was like, this isn't normal functioning. It's like suddenly she, her brain doesn't work. Yeah. Like, (laughs) so I called the doctor and they were like, stop her pills immediately. Like, just don't, it, it might be too much right now. Okay. And so we took her off. And 
she seemed to get a little better in the next couple of days and back to her normal self-ish. So we assumed that it was the new chemo that mm-hmm. caused her to have this weird brain weirdness. Yeah. Uh, and then that following Friday, she wound up going to the hospital because she suddenly spiked a fever and like was having the same weird brain stuff. Okay. And I went to the hospital and I was still working through all this. Like I was still running the studio, brand new studio. This was like two months into me opening the studio. Yeah. Um, well, this was like months after, but yeah. it's like I'm new still studio, new. still it's going still through under it. Under a year, yeah. Yeah. And so I go to the hospital and I get all my stuff covered because my mom is being, you know, um, admitted to the hospital. And I wound up just sleeping there. She wound up needing blood transfusions oh. and some other stuff. And they were just testing her and making sure she was okay. And I stayed there for three days. Like, I didn't leave. I just stuck there. My sweet angel of a husband came and brought me clothes and food and, like, a bag full of stuff. Like, uh, and I just stayed with her while she had the transfusions there. And she wound up... Um, you know, feeling a lot better after having the blood transfusions and being more her normal self. And while we were there, it was actually kind of nice because I never really got to hang out with her while this was all going on. And we hung out at the hospital because we were just living there for three days. (laughs) uh, So like I would get up constantly because she was hooked up to all these machines. And every time she had to go to the bathroom, she couldn't really go by herself because she was hooked up to all this stuff. So I would like jump up and grab her, her pole and be like, okay, go ahead. I'm holding this. Go. And, uh, of course, she was still trying to mom me at that time because it was like middle of the night. She's having transfusions and she'd have to pee like every 10, 20 minutes. Yeah. And she tried to sneak out of bed at one point and not wake me up because she, she wanted me to sleep. sleep. <laughs> at which I like shot up out of the bed because it's like for me, it was like newborn baby brain. So like every time I hear a movement, I was like, I'm awake. I'm up. I'm doing something yeah. and like. She's like, it's okay, it's okay. And I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm here to help. Like, I'm here for this reason. I'm here because I need to help you. I was like, don't worry about me sleeping. I'll sleep when I'm dead. I'll sleep when I get home. It doesn't matter. I was like, let me just help you. And, um, you know, so we got to watch her favorite show on Sunday morning Mm -hmm. at the hospital. And then she went home and she was okay. And it was a few weeks after that that we wound up. She tried to go back on the chemo and it just wasn't working. And the her oncologist called and like told me she called me directly and basically said it's time for hospice and I was like oh (laughs) yeah she's like you know it's it's basically the chemo is not going to do anything anymore we're at that the point where we can't keep treating because it's going to do nothing yeah and it was really hard to hear but I am one of those people that like when things are happening I'm just going to get things done yeah you know like Uh, I was still caring for myself while going through this all, but definitely not to the extent that I probably should have been caring for myself. Um, And I wound up calling my mother to tell her, you know, and calling my dad to tell him. And it was, you know, I did it. I called and I said, okay, Dr. George just called and said, hospice, like it's time. And of course, like I hear my mom on the other line. I'm like, are you okay? Is... Is this something that you're able able to process? Yeah, I was going to say, was she able to understand that? Yeah, she was definitely logically understanding, but I could hear and feel the anger from her. Okay. Like, just being... The fight is, yeah, she's still going to fight. Yeah, like, she did not want that. It's... I can't imagine being the person that my mother had to be, like, on the end of hearing this stuff about yourself. Yeah. Like, 
knowing you're going to die, it's imminent and it's happening soon, you know? And so I was like, look, I'm like, I understand this is hard news, but we have to make these things happen now so that you're comfortable. Like, we don't want you to start falling down a road where you feel like crap and we have to put you in a home somewhere or whatever. Like, we know that you want the end of your life to be in your house. And we know that you want to be here with us. So we need to make that happen. And so I, you know, like I took everything off their plate and I just did it. Like Mm -hmm. I set everything up. I called hospice. I, you know, gave them all her information. I told them where we lived. I spoke to each individual person that needed to be involved because my dad was not wanting to handle that either. I mean, like he was having a lot of trouble just caring for her. I mean, he was the person who was with her all day, every day. Yeah. That's enough. He didn't need to take on more, you know, so I tried to take on a lot of like the stuff, like the, the doing stuff. He's lucky to have you in that. Yeah. (laughs) I, uh, you know, I mean, I, and I set up hospice and started everything and I think hospice was the hardest part of all of that. Like going through that was the most difficult. So I wound up just moving into her house while she was on hospice because it was like, we couldn't really, I mean, we probably could have forced ourselves to afford 24 hour care, but my dad didn't want someone living there all the time. Okay. And hospice provided a daily home health aid for like a certain amount of hours. So we had someone there in the afternoons from like, you know, I don't know, like one o'clock to five o'clock or five 30, something like that. Um, so it was nice to have that time and I kept, you know, trying to get my dad to leave the house during the time that she was there and, um, you know, but my mom progressed. It was only two weeks she was in hospice. So it was, it was hard, like, because you become a caretaker and you become your mom's mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that's what gets difficult and scary. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you had done all of this work intuitively prior, mm-hmm. and then you actually did all of this other, like, actual studying and working with clients. Yep. Right, and kind of bringing that all together, and still, it's like your mom. Yeah. Your yeah. Yeah. So, like, it's my mom, but it was like, had I not done all that training, and had I not worked with all these other women prior it would have been a lot more difficult to handle. I'm sure. Because it was, I was able to hear the news and logically understand what was happening. Yeah. Without, you know, feeling uh, anger from confusion and not understanding how the body was doing what it was doing, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And understand every side effect she could have had and understand how things were going to progress because I've watched it. Um, It was just never my mom. So... It was really difficult going through hospice with her because it was, it was like taking care of a baby, you know, like, but a very big baby. (laughs) So you were with her literally every day, Mm -hmm. every moment. Every day, all day for two weeks. And you didn't have any time. You said you sent your dad out when the hospice was there, but you were pretty much. Most of the time I would be there, but sometimes I would leave too if the health aide was there because she could kept her eye on my mother and I knew nothing was going to happen. Um, it was more toward like the last couple of days where I started to really lose it and I didn't want to be there. And it was like, sometimes you hear these things and they're weird until you experience them. Like, so 
toward the last few days when my mother was starting to not really be there anymore, mm-hmm. I had those thoughts that make you feel really guilty where I thought, I want you to go. Like, <laughs> I was like, I need you to pass away now. Like, this needs to stop. Yeah. You know, because like it started to be that she was uncomfortable and she couldn't think and she couldn't do. And now I'm going to get all teary, (laughs) but like she couldn't like stand up and she couldn't go to the bathroom. And like, it was so hard to watch, but there's like this huge, difficult fight going on internally. Cause it's like, you want your mommy, (laughs) but like, you also don't want your mommy to suffer and you know that she has to go. Yeah. like, so, like, I'm, like, fighting that, and, like, I left one afternoon, and I was, like, so scared and so sad to leave, and I was, like, I don't want to go, because what if it happens when I'm not here? Yeah. But I had to go, because it was so hard to be there, and I could take the time to rest and just recoup. Yeah. So I went out and I like, I went to a restaurant and bar with my husband and had a drink, <laughs> three drinks. He drove. Good. <laughs> um, I was like, oh, thank you, tequila. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it was really, really hard. But like, I, you know, like I understood it. I needed to just get away. Yeah. But like the thoughts of like, I need you to die. <laughs> like, you can't believe you're thinking that. Yeah. And. Like, but you, I mean, it, you're saying it sounds like more selfish, but it wasn't. It's right. You didn't want her to be in pain. Either. Right. Like, I just didn't want her to keep suffering, and I didn't want us to continue to suffer from having to support her through what she was going, and, yeah. like, there was just so much turmoil happening. Yeah. And when, where was she? Because, I mean, she was, sounds like a fighter, so at this point, too, was she verbalizing she was or could you feel what it was her energy like was she still fighting or was she she was fighting until the end very end yeah Yeah. even when she couldn't speak anymore like you could tell um the only time she stopped fighting was when she was passing okay like um so she was like conscious and able to discuss things until maybe a day or two before she passed because we had scheduled people to come see her and she knew and she kept asking who's coming when okay and she like hung on like Mm -hmm. she wasn't functioning mostly in the evenings like she couldn't function well she turned into like a baby at night okay um and but when her when someone would come to visit she would perk up and become herself for that time that they were here that energy yep And she would talk to them and she would have conversations and like one of the the ones that really was like difficult to listen to because I was there when she was having it. She was having a Skype discussion with her Mm -hmm. ex-husband who has always been a close friend of our family and um, she was talking to him and you could see I could see him getting upset like when he was talking to her and she kept just repeating to him this like one line that was like killer. It was very sweet but killer. She was like I don't want you to worry and I don't want you to think about how I am right now. Like, I want you to just think back on the happy times. Like, she was, like, trying to take care of him while she's dying, you know? And, like, that's who she was as a person. She would just try to care for everybody else but herself. (laughs) And uh, it was just her saying think back on happy times, like, really stuck. Um, But it was, like... 
so interesting to see her go through all this and like function completely when people were there because she wanted them to see the best thing of her before they left. Mm-hmm. Like even her best friend was the first, was the last person to come over and her best friend came up and they were talking like they normally would on the phone. <laughs> like my mom's giggling and they're telling stories to each other and it was very sweet. And, um, you know, her best friend left and like that night she just stopped wanting to talk. And the next day she like could barely function and could barely speak. And I was just like, wow, like she held it together until the last person was able to come see her and talk to her. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, the last couple of days were really difficult. Like I didn't want other people coming to the house and seeing her like that. Yeah. Like I knew I had to see her that way because I refused to not be with her until the end. (laughs) Um, but you know, it's thankfully hospice was amazing the company that we we utilized and they gave us all this information on what to watch for to keep our eyes open so we would know how long we had okay. with her and when things were going to progress to worse um so the last couple of days were really difficult and terrifying because like she was no longer herself like yeah. she just wasn't her anymore You said she stopped talking. Yeah, she stopped talking, but, like, when someone starts to die, a lot of weird things happen. Like, they don't talk anymore, but they're still moving, and they're still functioning. And there's these strange little things that happen within the next, like, when you know it's about to be, like, 24 to 48 hours before they pass, they start, like, reaching for things. Mm. Literally, their body starts, like... Their motor functions are strange. Like, so she was like grabbing onto the couch or grabbing onto something or like just reaching for things that weren't there. Just trying to like hold on. Yeah. It was so strange. Mm-hmm. And um, you could tell she was like, she would sit up and like make a noise. But it was almost like she was trying to communicate but couldn't. But it wasn't like scary. Mm-hmm. It was just like, huh. And, uh,. You know, well, it was all really hard. We, my dad and I knew that it was coming, that she was going to pass. And I stayed over. It was like, I don't know, it was like a Friday, Saturday night, like I was staying over. And it was Saturday night. My father and I had like said to each other, like, we know this is happening and I think it's going to happen tonight. And it was like that Saturday night I was sleeping on the couch. We had a, a whole bed set up for her in the living room. That I had, you know, obviously made with all of her own stuff, like her sheets, her blankets, her pillows, stuffed animals, like, (laughs) and her cat, Athena, would come up on the bed and hang out with her. (laughs) And, um, so I'm laying on the couch and I'm in and out of sleep and I'm going to go back to something, uh, that we talked about earlier, which was Judy passing my mom's friend. I remember thinking after she passed that all I wanted out of her passing was for her to communicate with me. After she died. All I wanted was to hear something from her and uh, have her come to me in a dream or any, any form of communication would have been great. Yeah. When Judy passed. passed. And I was like, I just, I want that, but it never happened. Okay. And when it never happened and I noticed that it never happened, I just assumed I'm like, well, obviously there's nothing after death. Mm. Like, (laughs) yeah. uh, Like, because if there was a possibility that she could have spoken to me or, 
connected to me, she would have. Yeah. And I was, like, angry about it. Okay. So the night that I'm sleeping at my mom's, waiting for her to pass, I was just listening to her breathing because when you're, when you know someone's going to pass, like, she had stopped really trying to do anything. She had stopped eating. She had stopped drinking. We were finally giving, administering her some morphine to make her comfortable um, and not be in pain because in the last day or so she was rubbing her stomach like she was having pain but she couldn't verbalize it and she would stop when I gave her medication um so like that night you could tell her breathing had changed her body movements changed and everything shifted so I kept laying on the couch in and out of sleep listening for her breath to change because there's something really unfortunately called the death rattle (laughs) yeah I wish that it had a different name but it is true to its name (laughs) Uh, and it's just something that happens when you, when the person is within an hour of their, they're going to be dying. They start to have this sound when everything starts to shut down in their breathing. So that's what I was listening for the whole night. I kept sleeping and waking up and listening and laying down and sleeping and waking up and listening. And my dad was around just pacing the house because he was like, couldn't sleep and didn't know what to do with himself and would come into the living room and be like, what do I do? Where do we go? And I'm like, you just got to. You just got to relax, like try to, try to sleep, try to rest, whatever you need to do. Watch a movie, just do something. Yeah. So it was like maybe 2.30 in the morning and I'm asleep. And in my sleep, I'm not dreaming. Uh, As clear as she was sitting next to me, I heard her say, thank you. (laughs) And like, again, this sends me into like severe tears and crying because it was so freaking weird like I was like I was asleep and I just heard her say thank you yeah and as soon as I heard that I get a tap on my shoulder and I wake up and my dad is holding my shoulder and he's like I you need to get up I think it's happening and I was like oh my god like what and like so I sit up and I look and I'm like well she's definitely not awake and didn't speak to me like sitting next to me yeah. And uh and she but she was still doing the breath. Yeah, so the breath had started. This okay. this death so rattle yeah. breath had begun. So she was still but barely. Okay. Yeah. And like so my dad and I just pulled up chairs and sat with her and I mm-hmm. held her hand and like leaned in and like made sure to tell her it was okay to go cuz I was like I don't want you to hold on anymore like it's okay to go. Like you obviously think that it's okay to go because you just said thank you to me in my dream and I wasn't even dreaming. So somehow, some way you figured out how to contact me and it worked. Yeah. And like hearing her say that to me made it that much easier to sit with her as she passed because it's like, I wasn't worried. Yeah. Like I knew it was time. Yeah. It was really hard to watch, but it was like, as you get into that, it's like you, you, I knew it was what I was supposed to be doing. Like, my father and I were sitting with her, and her cat, her name's Athena, her cat Mm -hmm. got onto the bed while she was passing, Mm -hmm. and, like, walked up to her head and bumped it. (laughs) And then curled up by her feet. And, like, it was so amazing. I, like, so I'm holding her hand, and my father and I are just waiting. And we watch her pass. We watch her go. And it's so strange. People talk about, oh, they look like they're at peace. And it's true. Yeah. <laughs> like, the their body suddenly just looks peaceful. 
Like, and it didn't feel scary. It didn't feel awkward or uncomfortable. It just felt like she was ready to go. And she left. Yeah. (laughs) And, like, right when it happened, I, like, I sat up and I held my dad's hand and I said, okay, it happened. Like, we we need to call the nurse, the hospice nurse. And it was 3 o'clock in the morning. So it was 3.05. I looked at the clock exactly and I was like, okay, time of death, 3.05. Like, I got very, very, like, medical about it. Back into logistics. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, 3.05. That's time of death. Which, by the way, is not true. Okay. (laughs) Time of death is when the nurse nurse says it is. Okay. So her time of death recorded was 4.25. Okay. Wow. So... You know, we call and the nurse says it'll take me a little while to get there. And it took her about an hour to get there. At which point I just sat on the couch and pulled up my computer and started writing an obituary. (laughs) Because I was like, what else am I going to (laughs) do? So I'm like, I'm going to write the obituary. I don't know if we're going to use it. We didn't. Um, (laughs) But I'll write one. So I just started writing an obituary. And I was just being very, like, factual and then putting a list together of when who needed to be called and finding everything that needed to happen in the next steps. And, uh, you know, it was like we wound up sitting there until 6 o'clock in the morning. Like, it was weird because it was so – it was the middle of the night. We wound up having to just be there with her body for f- three hours. Yeah. Um, and so I was functioning like I would normally – and uh, at 6 a.m., I hear a door, and I look out the window, and the most stereotypical undertakers are <laughs> walking up to the door, yeah. which made me giggle. Because <laughs> I look out, and both these guys were, like, six foot eight with, like, sunglasses at 6 o'clock in the morning when it's not even sunny. Um Long black trench coats, somber looks, wow. softly, slowly walking up to the front door. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I see them. I'm like, whoa, this is weird. And like, I open the door and they walk in. My dad just goes, you guys are fucking tall. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Okay. Here we are, and, uh, 6 a.m. Yep. So like, they grab our hands. They're like, we're so sorry for your loss. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, all right, thank you. You know, she's over there if you want to go grab her. Yeah. Um, and my dad made sure he took her wedding ring off, which I am currently wearing <laughs> and, uh, I haven't taken off because I just haven't wanted to. So it just lives yeah, there. Of course. Um, so I was good for those three hours. I was totally functioning, not crying, not upset. Everything felt like it was supposed to feel the way it was feeling. And I walked out of the room when the guys went to go remove her. And I thought, you know, okay, I probably don't want to be in here and watch them do that. Yeah. So I went to the other room, and the second I realized that they were walking out with her body, I, like, collapsed to the floor and, like, curled up into a fetal position and cried like I hadn't cried since I was, like, two. Mm. (laughs) And, like, hysteria, like, hysteria crying. Yeah. Like, scream crying. (laughs) Like, it felt like half of my heart had been removed from my body. Yeah. And it was so intense. And, like, they took her and they left. 
And I went into the living room and it's like the first time my father and I had this sort of like serious embrace. Like out on the couch and all he did was like run over and like wrap himself around me <laughs> and start crying with me in a ball. Yeah. <laughs> like and it was so so intense but so strange and it was weird. <laughs> yeah. Um but it was like I was holding it together until her body was gone. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like when you are in you are very good at being purposeful. I mean, I just know that as a person that you are. Yeah. Um but it sounds like as soon as you had that moment where you were feeling what you were feeling, uh, you were like, okay, let me turn into purpose mode. Uh-huh. Let me have a purpose. And then it just, it really, it just hit you. And yeah, yeah, mommy was gone. Yeah. And well, in my whole life, like both my parents constantly, especially my mother was like, you should be like an EMT or something. You're really good at emergency situations. And she wasn't, she's never been wrong. Like yeah. when things have to be done, especially when it's like life or death or something is really yeah, important. Literally. There's like a switch in my mind, like where it's just like yeah. emotions turn off, function turns on. Yeah. You know, like, but it's not like, it's not a bad thing. It's just something that some people are able to do. And I'm one of those people where I can just say, okay, emergency happening let's make what has to happen happen yeah you know and like so I'd been doing that and I I was in that mode with her since she was diagnosed so it was nine months of me being on function mode yeah like (laughs) so fetal position post body being out was just nine months prior like that whole nine months prior just your breakdown yeah yep and um, yeah, I mean, there was so much that happened afterwards, I'm sure, but have you been able to take care of yourself now? Or is that like turned over to a priority? Yeah, but yeah. it's still been really difficult. So it happened on, she passed on March 31st and it's been so strange to try and figure out like how to be normal again (laughs) like how to let myself run my business and have friends and do normal things (laughs) and like it's been two months was that no almost three almost three now um we're like I, I'm still not functioning on the yeah. level that I was prior to her passing. Yeah. Like, or prior to her being diagnosed, rather. I'm still, like, forgetting things or missing phone calls or missing texts or seeing things and not responding. Yeah. And it's none of it is on purpose. Right. It's, uh, it's just, like, things fall behind because my mind is still not quite healed. Yeah. And I'm still grieving, and grief is weird as fuck. Like, yes. <laughs> oh, like, it's so unpredictable, and it's so <sighs> strange. And half the time, I don't know that I am still grieving, and I forget yeah. until I have missed responding to three emails, and someone is calling me like, "Hello," yeah, and I'm like, "Oh, right, you." 
called me or emailed me three days ago and I totally meant to get back to you. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Uh, And that's like for people who have known me for a long time, like that's just not me. That's not how I function. I am always on top of everything all the time. Yeah. And not in a an overdoing it way, but in a way where like I have figured out how to manage my time and what I'm doing. Yeah. And my time has been so thrown off from the whole experience. Yeah. You've been in a bubble. Yeah. For the nine months, like you're still functioning those nine months. Right. Even, even that last month or a couple of weeks when right. you were with your mom, you were still in shifting to caretaker mom. Yep. And so it is, you're somehow resetting yourself. And yeah. That takes time. Yeah, yeah. It takes a lot of time. I know after my, I mean, I didn't go through what you were going through, um, but I, when my father passed, it was very sudden, so I didn't have any of this preparation that you had. But uh-huh. I remember when I was grieving, I mean, it took, it took at least a year. I mean, it was hitting all of yeah. the holidays, right? Yes. All of the things that you knew, his birthday, Father's Day. Yep. The last Christmas we had spent together, all of those, you're hitting those tick, tick, ticks. It took a really long time, but I remember the first few months of setting aside, I think it was Fridays was my day, where I could have my shit together, you know, because I was like you. I had just started a yoga program. Yep. And I think it was, no, it wasn't even a year. It was only a few months. Um into it when I, when he passed, but I, so I had to, and I wasn't, it wasn't just my business. I was working for other people. Right. Um, but so I really felt like, Oh, I have to hold myself accountable, you know? Yeah. And, but I gave myself an afternoon. Okay. I teach this class and then I go home and I get to do whatever I want. I can cry. I can throw things at the wall. I can look at photos. I can write in my journal. I can just watch movies and avoid it. Whatever you want. Like that's it. Um, and I think, God, I don't know what I would have done <laughs> if, um, if I didn't have that time and space. And I'm, it sounds like you're giving yourself those little pockets. Yeah. I'm um, trying to come back to normalcy in some way, but also being able to just let yourself not be like your typical Becca. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Forgiving with yourself. Yeah. So I'm, that's good. You know, trying really hard to do the whole self-care thing and, yeah let myself get more massages and let myself take more classes and do more fun things for myself. But that's also on top of trying to, you know, like reintegrate myself back into my business because I was out of it for two months Yeah, and not working for two months was like weird with a brand new business. Yeah. And just you in general, you're such a hard worker. Like I just, I work like that's what I do. Yeah, I know. I'm like that too. I mean, you were around while I was going through all this. So it was like, you know, those two months, I was terrified when I first decided I needed to step away. I was like, oh my God, that's, I don't even know how long I'm going to not be working. I hope the studio stays together. Oh my God, is it going to be like on fire and falling apart by the time I get back? And it wasn't. It wasn't. I have the most amazing group of teachers. The most amazing group of people that work in my studio yeah, that did nothing short of miracle care for everything while I wasn't there. And I can't tell you how many times I cried just because of being happy about, I, I would walk in there like, cause I would try to still go there on Thursdays to make sure like money was taken care of and I would go to the bank and yeah. 
But I would walk in, like, the first couple times I'd walk in and be like, oh my god, oh my god, I'm gonna go in there, there's gonna be piles of laundry, there's gonna be piles of stuff. And I would go in and everything was beautiful. Everything was done. Everything was taken care of. And I would walk in and I would cry. Because I'd be like, they care. They Uh, care and they take care of it and they care about me and they care about my business and oh my god. Yeah. And, uh, so, um. I deserve it. I can't, like, blown away by the amount of care that was taken of the business that I only just started. Yeah. Like it speaks volumes to the people I chose to have with me. That's awesome. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so now I'm, I'm back doing that. And in these past three months of shifting, I can't explain to you my life. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and we're going to kind of draw a conclusion to this one but we're gonna have you back on because you have another ridiculous story yes that was happening basically at the exact same time as all this do we want to give a little we can give a little preview yeah we can do uh we don't have to go crazy so next time on this wonderful podcast yeah but uh yeah but the the twist to all of this was this was not your your birth mom, you were adopted. Correct. So yeah. I am an adopted child, and I was adopted when I was like, I think I was 15 or 16 months old. And um, so I grew up with, you know, my mom and my dad. Like, these are my mom and my dad, but I grew up knowing that I was adopted. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my whole life I would do little researches online or whatever, seeing if I could find anything. and. Mm-hmm. Never really came up with anything because yeah. <laughs> it was a closed adoption. I only had very minimal information. Yeah. And, um, you know, my parents, of course, had always been a little bit nervous about me finding my birth parents if I ever had the ability to. Um, but I just kind of settled on the fact that it might not ever happen. And I even did um, the DNA tests on Ancestry.com um, and uh, I think 23andMe. I did both of those just to see if there were any DNA relatives out there and that I'd be related to. And even on those, I only found like the closest relative was like a second cousin, maybe. Okay. So I didn't even like try too hard with that, but it wound up being ancestry that what two weeks after my mom passed, I wound up finding a cousin who long story short, long story put into another podcast at some point. Um, Go all the details next time. She wound up finding my birth father. And he wound up finding my birth mother. And I wound up having a whole nother family out there that wants to know me. Literally weeks after. Two weeks after my mother passed. And it was, the timing was just ridiculous. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot more to be said about all that, but we'll leave it. Yeah. For later. Let's, let's talk about that because there's so many questions around that. And yeah. And there will probably be more to talk about by absolutely. the time we do another yeah, podcast. Yeah, you'll, yeah, you'll <laughs> it's all happening now. Data to report back. Well, thank you so much, Becca, for, you know, taking time, first of all, and being super vulnerable and sharing, you know, a lot of the intimate details that even I didn't even know as your friend, I didn't get to hear all of it. Yeah. Um, so thank you for, you know, taking time and feeling co- comfortable and safe to share with me and also whoever who's listening here. So yeah. thank you so much. You're welcome. I hope, you know, with what I was able to discuss that somebody hears it that is either going through it or has gone yeah. through it or might be starting a journey through it. Yeah. And they can find comfort in some of the things that I was talking about or 
even reach out to me if they feel like yeah. they need someone to we'll help. definitely have your information so that people can follow you too. So yeah. they can um, reach out if they need anything, like you said, or also yeah. just want to continue to follow your journey. Yep. So, um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks.